Hi, I'm Michael Sunoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable mp3 audio business interviews i knew i needed a site that contained strategies solutions and inside angles to help you live better to save and make more money to stay healthier and to get more out of life i've learned a lot in the last five years and today i'm going to show you the skills you need to survive Again, if we look at the research around executive coaching, where there's been a tremendous amount of work done, productivity increases. The research says that you can get productivity increased, you know, 53%. Quality goes up. Customer service goes up. Customer complaints get reduced. Costs get reduced. Teamwork is increased. These are all things that happen as a result of coaching. In fact, the interesting thing was that in the research that's done on coaching, most organizations see a return on investment of over plus on 500%. Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called How to Build an Unstoppable Sales Team. When Ian Siegel started his first sales job way back when, the only training he got was, hang in there, you'll do fine. Two hours later, he was sent home and told he should become a waiter. He's now a sales training expert who knows firsthand that good salespeople aren't born. They're taught. And in this audio interview with him, you'll hear how to build an unstoppable dream team by using the right training and support. But Ian says it has to start at the top. Unfortunately, sales managers aren't usually taught how to manage their teams, which is why salespeople usually get sent out to the field with little more than you-can-do-it pep talk. Then these managers busy themselves by monitoring the performance activities of their salespeople, such as sales records, appointments, phone calls, etc., instead of actively developing an ambitious team where everybody knows their strengths, weaknesses, and goals with a clear-cut agenda every day. Once you have that kind of solid sales leadership in place, your quality, teamwork, and customer service will increase while your customer complaints and costs will go down. And you'll hear how to make that all happen in this audio interview. You'll also learn real-life case studies of companies that went from going negative every month to making a huge profit with increases in sales revenues and margins. You'll hear exactly where to look to find the real weaknesses in a sales team and how to give everyone on yours the tools and strategies they need to overcome them. You'll hear a little trick for pushing those higher margin products that actually work. You'll hear about a simple fact. It usually takes five contacts before a prospect buys. Here's how to set realistic, concrete goals for each one of those times so your sales team never loses focus on the end result. You'll hear about the hidden cost of hiring and training new employees, the real reason they leave in the first place. It's usually not about the money and simple strategies to keep everyone happy. You'll hear an insider's look at the sales management position, what it means to manage a sales team, why so many people get it wrong, and how to make sure yours gets it right. You'll hear the five key elements Ian says will put a rocket up your sales team every time. 
You'll hear the qualities and skills that make up a dream sales team and how to make sure yours will have them all. You'll hear about a three-second exercise that will show you why you need a sales process in place, why it's important to create a template from the buyer's perspective, and how to do it. Look, Ian says you can send your salespeople to the best training all you want, but if your sales management isn't on board to drive the message home, it's pointless. 85% of training actually fails because of this one reason alone. Managers need to know how to manage people through coaching, helping, and mentoring their team instead of sending them out to guess at what will get results. By starting at the top and getting the right process and system in place, you'll be building an unstoppable sales team. And in this audio interview, you'll hear how to do it. Now let's get going. Why should I listen to you? What makes you an expert? Can you give me a little history on you and your background and how all this got going? Michael, if you were to have a look at my library, you would see probably close on 800 books on the subject of selling and sales and sales management and management. It's become an absolute, it's, it is a passion of mine, mainly because I, I was so bad at it. Like how can you take somebody who's not a salesperson and how do you get them to sell? And can you just take anybody and turn them into a salesperson? What makes good salespeople? Is it just a talent? And I believe, yes, in, in many cases, talent counts for a lot. But you can take non-talented people, and if you give them the right tools and you work with them and coach them over time, you can get really, really good results. In fact, many times you can actually, the results you can get are better than with talented people because they're following a, uh, a design process to get a result, whereas sometimes talented people just kind of do their own thing. It's a passion of mine. I've always been a student of sales process and selling, mainly because my very first experience in sales and many after then, I failed and failed dismally. What was your first experience in selling? My first experience of selling was I got myself a Saturday morning job in a bank way back then. Stores weren't open on a Saturday. They used to close at 1 o'clock. How old were you? I was 16 years old. A friend of mine got me the job. We were selling men's and boys' clothing. The training program was... There's a stock, hang in there, you'll be fine. That was the training. Come morning tea time, uh, we started at 8.30, about 10 o'clock that morning. This friend of mine comes up to me because we're working together, and he hands me an envelope, and inside the envelope is my two hours worth of pay. And he says to me, the boss says that I need to tell you that you're probably not going to make it as a salesperson. You better go and get a job as a waiter, and you know, here's your pay for so he fired you after two hours? Correct. That probably hurt. Well, at that point, I had a decision to make. I could either believe him and say, well, what do you know? You didn't give me a chance and rationalize positively. Or I could actually choose to believe him and take on his, his disbelief that I was no good at selling and that I would be better off as a waiter. So what did you do? How did you handle it? Well... <laughs> Because of my self-esteem at that stage, I actually chose to believe that he was right and I was wrong. And so I had this belief system in my head that I was never going to make it in sales. And no matter what I did and no matter how I tried, and I did, I tried. I I was one of the youngest recruits in an insurance company to go and sell life insurance. And I struggled. And 
I worked hard. I would sit there at night making call after call after call, but I had this little voice in my head that said, well, you're never going to make it. You're never going to make it. Yeah, how old were you when you took on the license? I was now in my early 20s. And were you in a position where you really you had to go make a living for yourself? I was now. I now had to make a living. And so then I took another sales job, which I thought would be easier, selling industrial cleaning chemicals going into organizations and selling them cleaners. What kind of training did they provide? Again, like most organizations, uh, a smattering of product training and hang in there. You'll be fine. Just make the calls. And, you know, this, and I did what so many salespeople did. I would drive past an, a, a company, and just by driving past, I could look at that company and tell that they had no need for what I was selling, just by driving past. And the truth of the matter is, I couldn't tell a thing. I just had this voice in my head that I was just, I feared the rejection. I didn't want to go in. I didn't want to make the effort. And I would spend my morning driving around, looking at all these potential opportunities and rationalizing, well, they wouldn't need what I've got to sell. And eventually, I just burnt out of selling and made the decision that I was not ever going to be able to sell. Just so happened, I was fortunate enough to be able to go back into the family business, and which I ran then for five years. So what was the family business? We were selling industrial roller shutter doors and servicing them. So again, nothing sexy about the business. It was just hardcore. Mm-hmm. But again, I wouldn't even go out with the salespeople to train them. So this is how I was managing my life. Anything I could do to avoid selling. I then left to go to, to live in America at the time. Where did you live? We lived in Dallas. So right in Dallas, 26 years old, with my brand new bride. What am I going to do? And the truth is, because I didn't have any, all I had was a high school education. Mm-hmm. The only job I could get was baking chocolate chip cookies and brownies, and working for you know four dollars an hour. Where are you working? Like at a bakery? In a catering company. We were baking for Macy's at the time. Did you have kids at that time? No, fortunately not. So I'm driving down the road one morning, and Dallas gets bitterly cold, and we start at four o'clock in the morning. I'm driving to work, thinking. Oh, I'm way behind on my promises to myself and to my wife. All of a sudden, I'm listening, and we were driving a beat-up Mazda 323 station wagon, which had, one thing about it, had a great air conditioning and heating system. And it had a radio that only got AM. All of a sudden, this booming voice of Earl Nightingale, you know, so he comes on, and, and I was just listening, and he says that if you will read for 20 minutes a day on your favorite topic, within 10 years you can become an expert in that field. I hear this voice and I pull over to the side of LBJ Freeway and it was like uh, I'd just seen the light. The only problem was I didn't know what my chosen field was. I knew how to read mm-hmm. and because work finished at 2 o'clock I had plenty of time on my hands. And so that afternoon I actually went to the public library and as I walked in and called it what, you know, synchronicity, call it what you will, walked in and there on the uh, on one of the shelves is the book How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins. And I don't know why I picked it up and read the forward or read the introduction. And there he says that salespeople are not born; salespeople are trained. And that was for me was a revelation. I suddenly realised why I'd failed in sales for so many years, and thought, okay, well, I'm going to train myself. And I devoured the book. I read it from page number one to to the last page over and over again thinking, okay, well, now I know, except that I then went out and tried to get myself a job selling. I then had to kind of sell myself. But by then my self-esteem was, you know, around this whole concept of selling. Was, I was also struggling. And finally, in fact, I actually got a job working for Tom Hopkins, and we would go around the country promoting the seminars. 
we would literally call up the sales manager, ask them for you know 20 minutes, half an hour at one of their sales meetings, and we'd back in those days we'd walk in with a TV set and a VCR and show a video of Tom doing his thing. Yeah. Normally, how to deal with the objection of I want to think about it, right? And we'd do a quick facilitation around that and and close like match, try and get people to come to the seminar. What the biggest learning at that stage was, I suddenly found myself with roadblocks. We were out there selling sales training, and yet I still hadn't had any sales training. I was listening to Tommy's tapes on in the car. I'd, I'd lived and breathed. It, there was no sales management to speak to. To speak of, there was no one actually guiding me, saying, "Okay, you need to do this. Let's take a look at your week. What have you planned? How are you going to do it?" It was just again, "Hang in there. You'll be fine." And this was from a sales training organisation. The sales training was fantastic. I mean, Tom was great, but the management I never felt supported. You're listening to Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. So what happened after working with Tom Hopkins? What did you do after that? I worked with him for six years. But the interesting thing was what I learned most in not only obviously working with other organizations, but I learned to actually start to read about selling. Because through my own need, so my initial need was I was struggling setting appointments. So I went out and literally bought every possible book I could on how to set appointments and how to get an appointment over the telephone. And became really, really. And by then we were going into companies and customizing his training to suit those organizations. And then we immigrated myself and my small family. But then we had a little boy and we moved across to Australia. And I'm a sales trainer. And I, in fact, I got my first job as a sales trainer for a large insurance agency. There were over a hundred agents. I was the trainer. I would run these huge workshops, these two-day, three-day boot camp. This is how you're going to sell. And I couldn't understand why we weren't getting results. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately for me, uh, I'd been with the company for about uh, four months, and and they closed the doors. The um, they hadn't paid the rent in eight months, and and I suddenly found myself out on the street with a mortgage and no job. What did you do after that? Again, I started a uh, sales training consultancy and picked up a client here and a client there. And then one of my clients was a large sporting goods retailer. And they asked me to stay on and, and help them grow. They wanted to take the company public, and I stayed on. And, and actually, through just reading and learning and studying, and I became the national HR and training manager. Over 2,500 people that I was responsible for. How long were you with them? I was with them for close on 80 years doing the corporate thing. So I understand the core, you know, how to do the corporate thing and play the politics and stand in a boardroom and do the presentations. Did you bring them great results? The results were, were unbelievable. The company just grew massively. We took the company public, we won awards, etc., etc. I mean, obviously, we had a, a great management team, and I'm certainly not going to take the credit for everything we did. But I learned about how to drive a culture into an organization. And again, when I had a need and I wanted to work out how do you motivate people or how do you get people to do things, went to the bookstores. And again, there's no shortage of books on HR and HR process and, and motivation and performance, etc., etc. Why are salespeople so poorly trained? They're poorly trained for a number of reasons. And I think, again, like, like most things, it's time, it's money. And bottom line is, most sales managers at one stage or another of their lives would have either paid for themselves or had a 
great for them to go to a seminar or a workshop. And they've sat in a seminar for a day or a workshop for two days. And when you look at, okay, the actual, the actual results, how much of that time, effort, and energy actually translated into hardcore sales improvement, it's normally not that much. So I think people get really jaded. I know when I first started on my consultancy, we just, at that stage, I was just selling sales training. And you speak to sales managers and it's, well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. My people, they already know this stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to know and not to do is to not yet know. So I might know it intellectually in my head, but I'm still not doing what I know. And it's, it's a soft skill. Let's say that soft skills are hard to train and really hard to measure. I mean, it's one thing if I'm teaching you how to, about my product. You know, companies will invest time and effort and energy teaching their salespeople about the product line and about their systems and about their procedures. But in how to build rapport, you know, how to build relationships and all the, you know, how to ask meaningful questions to uncover needs, they'll skim over that. Or it's almost expected if I'm hiring a salesperson and I'm paying you $80,000 or $120,000 a year plus a car, I kind of expect that you already bring those skills to the table. So all I need to do then is teach you about my product and then, hey, man, go out and sell it. Who is this program actually suited for? Michael, typically the types of people that would come to a program like this are sales managers, national sales managers, marketing directors, in many cases sometimes CEOs. I guess it would be those people in management that are most concerned that they're not getting the sales production, the sales performance that they're looking for. Who would you like to work with most? Is there any one type of prospect that is more enjoyable for you to operate your business with? People that have issues around sales. They have a sales team and they don't know how to get productivity out of their sales team. And more importantly, they're not closed. They're open to having someone come in, sit down with them, open up their head, so to speak, and, and not only their own personal head, but the heads of their salespeople and also their systems and processes to say where is the default or where is it not working. I guess, Michael, it's kind of like if you go in and you've got a software program that you're installing into an organization. It forces a certain change because you have to change things. You've got to change your processes to, in many cases, meet the needs of the software program. And it's in that change that you actually get the results that you're looking for because many times your own processes are not up to scratch. So the new system comes in, drives the new productivity of the new change that you're looking for. Now, can you think of an example of you took on a client and you didn't enjoy the process? And if so, why didn't you enjoy it? <laughs> yeah, we, we've, we've had a few of those. Typically, I'm thinking of one example. I was working with an owner of an organization. The man had issues. The salespeople were not motivated. They were in a highly competitive market, almost a commoditized market. And after we'd done the research and looked at all the particular issues and put them on the table, he still had his own mindset as to what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And in the end, my response was, well, you know, what am I doing here if we're going to do it your way? Yeah, so what happened? I walked away. But he initially hired you? He initially hired me. He wanted to drive more production out of his sales team. Well, that type of owner, is that an owner who just can't give up control? Why do you think there are owners like that who are so insistent on keeping control? There are many owners and many senior managers like that. You know, they believe they've gotten to that position on the back of their own hard work, initiative, ideas, 
And it's like anything, you get some people that know everything and that are not open, and, and you get others that recognize that if, if they knew better, they would do better. To talk to and meet with and train a lot of sales managers, what's going on in these people's lives? Number one is stress, frustration. They've got a sales team. They're not getting the production. They've got their boss on their head. They've got budgets they're trying to meet. And the only way many of them know how to meet it is to actually get out and go and do the work themselves. That means you've got one salesman on the road. Whereas if the sales manager can get his four or five or eight or 12 people performing, you've now got 12 to the one. And so many times we go into an organization, what we find is come the last two weeks of the month and sales are not there. The sales manager right now it's time for me to get out and, and go and do what these people are supposed to do. Why aren't my people doing what they're supposed to do? Why is it that I'm the one that has to go out and sell? Why is it that I'm the one that has to go out and close the deal, bring them home? What kind of feedback are you getting from the owners that is frustrating by having an untrained sales force or an incompetent sales manager? Most organizations at the beginning of the year, they, this is our, our budget, these are our goals, these are our, our objectives. And they set them up and, you know, we want 5% on last year or 10%, whatever the case might be. And it's almost an expected, okay, guys, now go out and do the work that we need to do. So when you start to see month after month the gap widening between your reality and, and your goal, there's, in many times it's a panic. Sometimes, again, it's a feeling of, what am I paying these guys for? Good salespeople don't come cheap. And many times you have salespeople that aren't good and they don't come cheap either. And then the boss is walking through the, through the office and you see salespeople hanging out at the water cooler, having coffee, or, or they're out. And the frustration is, I don't know what my people are doing. The sales aren't there, then sometimes they're in the office, most times they're out the office. It's almost like, I'm paying these people, I don't know what they're doing. I don't see them and I don't see the sales figures. All I get is excuses. I come to the end of the week at the sales meeting, you know, let's look at sales. What's happening? Well, this one said that they're going to close. This one said next week. This one said that uh, it's always the next week. In the meantime, if you're the boss, you've got payroll to meet. You've got expenses. You've got to pay for. In your experience working with sales managers in business and seeing some of the results that your system can bring, can you give me an example of a success story with a company that you've worked with and tell me a little bit about that? One of the things that about the work that I do, when we have somebody or we have a company that's open and that's willing to do what we suggest, the results blow me away, far more than I would ever expect. So as an example, we've got, we're working with a, an organization, nothing sexy about the organization. They sell sandblasting equipment and the material that goes with the equipment. Just on a regional, local basis? They're a national company and they've got regional offices around the country. How many salespeople do they have? Overall, they've probably got about 25 salespeople across eight different offices. So we went in and the MD was, look, I'm willing to give you, give you guys a try. I've got a guy in one of our regional offices who is struggling, he's, he's stressed, he's doing the work himself, his team's not where they need to be, sales are not where they need to be, sales are, they were averaging at that point $118,000 a month and their budgets uh, were $150,000 a month. So they were way short of what they're supposed to be doing in a really good market. By the way, the reason that they were chosen as the pilot site was because the MD really felt that the sales manager would be willing, would an open vessel for receiving the help. So we went in there and 
within three months. We'd done no training of the salespeople yet. Just went into the organization, put in some systems, processes, and gave the manager some tools. Literally within three months, it's unbelievable. They shot up from averaging, as I say, $115,000 to they're now averaging two twenty consistently every month, $220,000. The interesting thing as well was that their margin was hovering around about the 40 42%. Within three months, we'd gotten that margin up to 46%, and now they're consistently between 45 and 46%. And we haven't even gone in and trained the salespeople yet. Give me another example like that. In fact, one of the first clients we ever had was a an organization that the general manager called us in, felt the sales manager, who was a national sales manager, just wasn't up to scratch. And could we either help him get himself together, put sales on the board, or at the very worst, either coach him in or coach him out of the business. So we went in and, again, just looking at that he managed his people. Within six weeks, we totally turned him around, his department around, and the, the beauty of that was is that he didn't have to go and look for another job. We just showed him how to do his job a whole lot better. He, what these guys were doing, they were averaging, again, as a national team, $1.2 million a month. And literally within six weeks, we'd blown their figure out the water. All of a sudden, they're now doing $300,000 extra in a month. That's a lot of money. And again, we hadn't started to train these salespeople yet. It's just coming into, into an organization, looking at simple things that the sales manager is doing, and in many cases not doing. And as a result, the numbers just consistently amaze me. You know, many times you've got an organization and sales are not there. Along comes someone says, well, we need to train the salespeople. Yeah, that's, that'll get us our numbers. And yet, you can go in and do all the training you like, but at the end of the day, it's the head of the fish that always thinks. And again, if I've been there and done that. If I can share one more example. So I had a situation where I was called in by a national bank. This is a major bank. And we were, they called us in to work with their merchant services division. These are the salespeople that sell to the storekeepers and the retailers, the FPOS system, the credit card systems. And it's big business. And they called us in, and literally, it was quite amazing because the, the guy brought us in said, look, I don't care what you do. You've got almost an open checkbook. Put together the best possible training for my team. They had close on 60 salespeople across the country. So it was wonderful. We had this open checkbook, and we went in, and we did diagnostics beforehand, and we invested time, effort, and a whole lot of money to customize a three-day workshop. And we did individual profiling of the salespeople and found out their strengths and their weaknesses. We did the lot because, as I say, we had uh, pretty much an open checkbook. And we went in, did the training. So one of those typical wonderful affairs where everyone's fired up and everyone comes back and says, this was just the best training possible. Haven't had this, you know, where was this five years ago? And literally within three to four weeks when we wanted to now move on to the second phase opportunity, the feedback was, well, hold on a minute, it hasn't really taken root. There's no traction. And that's when I suddenly realized, well, hold on a minute. After, again, once we've done some analysis, it's to find out, so why wasn't there traction? It all came down to the sales manager. I mean, this was my own personal experience, but there's been research. 85% of training is not actually taken up unless, of course, there's somebody 
the coach or the salesman is actually driving it into the business. Tell me about that retail manager you coached who had 12 stores of that high fashion chain. So we've got a uh, one of our, our clients, and I've been working with him on various different projects for a number of years. And the MD met me and over a cup of coffee said, Ian, I really need you to get in here and, and shake things around. And they just employed a new general manager. This is a high fashion retailer. Got 12 stores around the country. And... And the store's average annual sales between 1.5 and their biggest store is $4 million a year. We went in, and again, working with the one-on-one with this national manager, within two sales quarters, so, you know, six months, on average, stores up on last year 20%. It's not just sales revenue up, margin is up. Because we're looking at things like, I'll give you an example. The organization I was telling you about earlier, the, the sand rafting company, we, we take a look at all their high margin products that they have and in detail say, okay, well now, what can we do to sell more of them? But in one particular example, one of their high margin products, a really high margin product, was a nozzle. So this is the thing that goes on the end of the sand blasting hose and, and they're really about $400 a pop and they carry high margin. They said, well, how can we sell more of these? So the first thing we did was say, well, let, let the salespeople actually carry these in their boots, their trunk of the car. And when they drive to the customer, let's go in. There's an actual testing device to test the, the nose or the whole of the, of the nozzle. And let's go in and, and that could be our, our lead-in to go and talk to these people and say, well, I'm here as free service. I'll come and analyze and have a look at the, your current nozzle, and which they did. People are happy to allow you to come in and have a look. The wider the hole of the nozzle, the more sand you're using. And it didn't take long before nozzle sales were just going through the roof. And you brainstormed that idea with the sales manager? Correct. So we look at all the all the things and say, okay, in this product, this carries high margin. You know, another example is the same company. Uh, they have sandblasting helmets and they have these glass visors. And so they sell them in packs of 50. Again, high margin. I said, well, why are you selling them packs of 50? Why don't you just package them in packets of 100? Well, no reason why. And so they're selling them packs of 100. And what happened? People bought them. And the interesting thing is you think, well, hold on a minute. So here you've got a situation, you know, the first question the sales manager said to me, well, was, hold on a minute. Surely, now they've just bought 100. If the 50 took them two months to use, the 100 are going to take them four months. What have I accomplished? But the truth of the matter is once you've actually got those things in stock, you people use them. If you've got them on the shelf, you use them. Michael, if you were to have a look at my library, you would see probably close on 800 books on the subject of selling and sales and sales management and management. It's become an absolute, it's it's a passion of mine, mainly because I I was so bad at it. And I'm constantly looking for, to make, how can you take somebody who's not a salesperson and how do you get them to sell? And, and can you just take anybody and turn them into a salesperson? What makes good salespeople? Is it just a talent? And I believe, yeah, in, in many cases, talent counts for a lot. But you can take non-talented people, and if you give them the right tools and you work with them and coach them over time, you can get really, really good results. In fact, many times you can actually, the results you can get are better than with talented people because they're following a, uh, a design process to get a result, whereas sometimes talented people just kind of do their own thing. It's a passion of mine. What are the biggest issues facing sales managers today? Sales managers 
are challenged today by many, many things. You've got markets where you've got increased competition. So, you know, you've got competition, especially if it's a good business and it's a good business market, it doesn't take long before it's flooded with competitors. And before you know it, you've got, you're now no longer selling something that's unique, it's, it's now a commodity. Think about the cost of that today of acquiring, actually getting a new customer. You know, to put a salesperson on the road today, it costs a lot of money. The interesting thing is many companies, when they do a budget for a, a salesperson, they don't really actually work out the true cost of a sales call. If you actually sat down and actually analyzed and looked at the true cost of a sales call, when you sent a salesperson out there to make the call, you'd really want to make sure that we maximize that investment. You know, on average, if you take someone who's earning $80,000 a year, plus the car. Your average sales call cost is about $200, $250. So, Michael, if you knew that you had a salesperson who's going to make a sales call and it was going to cost you $250 out of your pocket, what would you want for that $250? And that's one of the questions I ask business owners. It's costing you $250 to make the sales call. What do you want from the sales call? The obvious answer is normally, well, we'd like a sale. For 250 bucks, I would expect a lot. I expect someone who knows what they're doing. Now, let me put it this way. We also know through research that it takes roughly five visits or five contacts before somebody's going to give you an opportunity. So think about this. If you work it out at $250 a pop, that's quite an investment. So the question that I ask business owners and sales managers, what do you want from your first visit? We know we're not going to get an order until another five visits. What do you want in your first visit? What do you want your salesperson to accomplish? If that's put 250 bucks on the table, what do you want for your money? So it's really coming at this from a very different angle. And this is why coaching is so important, because if I'm going to send you as my salesperson into a company, it's going to cost me $250. I need to make sure that you're going in and you're going to come out with something of value. And most of the time, while we're trying to build through that, build the relationship, what I need most is information. I need knowledge about the company, about what they're using, what they're not using, about the competition, about uh, what the potential is, about decision makers, etc., etc. And these are the questions that the salespeople need to be initially going in and, up and finding out to make your $250 worthwhile. So other issues that sales managers are facing, the biggest one is with sales. Another huge issue is the sales cycle time. If you're selling software, if you're asking a company to change their whole system and process, the sales cycle can be 18 months. During that 18 months, you're supporting a salesperson and his car and etc. etc. And then you can get to the end of the 18 months and be flipped at the post by a competitor. The other big one is, where do I find a good salesperson, which is hard enough? How do I keep them? As I'm sure you can appreciate, to find a really good salesperson, someone who's hardworking, ethical, who is skilled, that's tough. But if I found them, how do I keep them? That's a big challenge for sales managers today. One of the byproducts of actually coaching salespeople and actually implementing a proper coaching process is that retention goes up because all of a sudden people are getting their needs met. The reasons why people leave generally are not because of money. They leave because they're unhappy. I'm not getting attention. I'm not appreciated. The researcher out there is that money is not one of them. Money becomes an issue only after I'm unhappy for the other reasons. But if I'm sitting down with my sales manager once a week and we're looking at my business and we're looking at my territory and we're picking it apart and putting it back together again and I'm planning my week and know exactly what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, attrition goes out.
Retention goes up. Is it expensive to hire and train new salespeople for companies generally? It is expensive to hire and train new people. Most organizations, certainly small to medium organizations, they just absorb the cost. As an example, I bring in a rep, they're going to go out and sell for me. There's normally, at a minimum, there's a week or two or three, if I'm really conscientious of training. I'll put them into the business to learn the business, to learn our systems, to learn our process for three weeks. And then I'll say, okay, right now you're ready, go out. And they'll go out and they'll burn opportunities because they don't know. So there's an opportunity cost. If you've bought in the salesperson to pay a recruitment fee for them, there's the car, there's the petrol, there's the mobile phone, there's the laptop computer. There's all these things that go in to make the cost of bringing on a salesperson far more than just their salary. On average, depending on how much you're paying your salespeople, but if they leave within three to four months, your average cost to your company, and these are hidden costs, can be anywhere between six and $50,000. Because these costs are hidden, they don't show up necessarily on the P&L. That doesn't mean to say that those costs don't exist. They do exist. They just don't show up on the P&L because most small to medium organizations don't measure the cost of their turnover. In fact, there are larger organizations that don't do that. And then what about if the salesperson spends a week with another salesperson in the field? That salesperson is probably not going to be as productive as they would have been. And there's the time that the manager spends with a brand new salesperson. These are all costs that when you start to unpack them, they just add up. So when you've got somebody, you have to invest in them to make sure you get your bang for the buck. The trouble is like with most investments, many times the returns are small in the beginning. The Japanese are the saying, you know, you've got to go slow to go fast. The same with salespeople. You bring in a salesperson initially, it takes them time to, to get going. How do most people end up in these sales management positions? Most sales managers, if you think about it, end up as sales managers because in many cases they were good at selling. I'm a good salesperson, I'm out there, I'm doing the right thing, and my sales manager leaves and all of a sudden, guess what, I get tapped on the shoulder, my boss says, well, you're good, I need a sales manager, let me make you the sales manager. And now all of a sudden the boss has got a problem. He's just lost his best salesperson and he's now gained a really lousy manager. Michael, the truth is just because I have sales manager written on my business card doesn't mean that I know how to manage. I know how to sell, but the word manager doesn't suddenly turn me into a manager. There's skills, there's tools, there's processes that I need to learn. And so many managers kind of learn on the job. You know, they learn as they go. Depending on most will copy the manager that they've had or managers that they like. The other area managers come from is uh, hung in there longer than anybody else. It might have been an average salesperson kind of in the middle of the team, but I've just been around for longer than anyone else. So how many sales managers actually move into their chair with knowledge on how to manage people? Managing people is a totally different ballgame. You know, there's so many key elements as to how to get performance out of people. It's not just let me check their activity, let me see how many phone calls they made this week. That's just tip of the iceberg. You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hardtofindseminars.com. And unfortunately, because most of them don't know, they revert to those things. So let me manage activity because that's the one thing I can kind of hang my hat on. I can see, well, you made 20 calls this week, you made three appointments, whatever the case might be. And those are things I can see. So I figure, well, I can manage that. But that's not actually managing and leading people. So unfortunately, you've got a lot of managers out there that are, are kind of learning as they're going. Sometimes, if they're lucky, they've attended a course, you know, a two-day workshop or they've done a course on sales management. 
but there again, you know, just because you do a course doesn't mean to say that come back and implement everything that you've learned. What is the biggest factor affecting the production of sales that you found through your involvement in the training industry? When it comes to sales production, there are a number of things that impact that. The number one issue is sales leadership. And again, I come back to if you've got a good manager and the manager's supporting and helping and coaching and mentoring his team, you will get sales results. Sales leadership is what it's about. As I mentioned earlier, the fish stinks from the head. If a company can get the sales manager to do what sales managers should be doing, which is coaching and mentoring and supporting their team, they've done a tremendous amount of research. As I said before, we know from the research that close on 50% of salespeople fall short of quota. They fall short of their budget. 90% of sales opportunities don't close when the salespeople tell us that it's going to close. 75%, as I said, of product launches fail. Why is that? How can you make them successful? Well, the truth is that it comes from the manager. You know, if you look at the key issues, again, that when it comes to the manager's faith with their people, they don't have the sales process. People don't have the skills. People aren't doing the right sorts of activity or the right sorts of things. People aren't being developed. These are all management issues. They're not sales issues. Sales production is a management issue. It's not a sales person issue. Yes, the salesperson has to go out and do the work, but it starts with the way the, their team is managed. So, Ian, why sales management coaching? Again, if we look at the research around executive coaching, where there's been a tremendous amount of work done, productivity increases. The research says that you can get productivity increased, you know, 53%. Quality goes up. Customer service goes up. Customer complaints get reduced. Costs get reduced. Teamwork is increased. These are all things that happen as a result of coaching. In fact, the interesting thing was that in the research that's done on coaching, most organizations see a return on investment of over plus on 500%. How is it that coaching a salesperson one-on-one can make such a huge difference? Really good question. If we look at the process of coaching a salesperson one-on-one, you start to get into the reasons why they're not actually performing. Most sales organizations would say, when do they get together with a salesperson? Maybe if I happen to be on the road with them, if I'm doing a joint call, if the person is actually going through a performance appraisal once a quarter. But when you're sitting down with a salesperson every single week for half an hour to 45 minutes dissecting the week that was and the week that's coming up, you start to see where the roadblocks are. You start to see where the challenges are. And you start to help them across those roadblocks. You know, had someone sat down with me all those years ago and identified that my biggest issue was fear of rejection, they could have walked me through that. It's not the reason why you shouldn't have sales production because there's so many ways of softening that process up. I'll give an example. We're working with a salesperson who had this exact issue. And so all we did, we said, okay, well, hold on a minute. Let's just chunk the process up. Firstly, where's the rejection coming from? The rejection is coming from the fact that they're so focused on the outcome, so focused on trying to make the sale, that if they don't make the sale, they take it personally. Let's focus on the process. All we want you to do is go out and find clients that would fit what it is that we're selling. So let's focus on fit rather than the sale. So now all of a sudden the salesperson's out there and their agenda is different. We're now looking for a match as opposed to I'm now looking to try and make a sale. Rejection went out the window with this particular individual. In your first visit, 
could you go in and find half a dozen key elements of information? Could you do that without feeling rejection? Now, yes, of course, I can go and find out who the person is, who this is, who that is, who the other is. Come back with that information. And once you've got that information as a sales manager, we now look at that and say, okay, what should we do? How do we now take this to the next step? And we chunk it down little bit by little bit by little bit based on the individual's need and what they can do. What do you expect? Michael, why should rejection be a reason for not wanting to be successful in sales? I want to be successful. I want to sell more. I want to achieve all the benefits that come from being a good salesperson. So why should rejection hold me back? The reason it does is because no one helps me to actually get beyond that. And I'm not talking about sitting down and becoming somebody's therapist. That's not what this is about. This is about giving them tools and strategies to help them overcome their basic roadblocks that are stopping them. Is there still a place for the traditional sales meeting? Absolutely. You've got to have your sales meeting. There's got to be a place to recognize your top performers. They want the accolades in front of the group. They want the pats on the back. They want to be trapped by their team. You've got information you need to impart to the group as a group. There's times that you want to brainstorm new ideas with the team. There's times you want to use those meetings for training, giving out new information for the traditional sales meeting. But to use the sales meeting as a way to drive performance, you're just not going to get it. So let's talk about this put a rocket up your sales team model and how it was developed. Give me an idea of what this model is and what it's going to do for my sales team. Put a rocket up your sales team model covers five key elements. It covers sales performance coaching. It covers sales performance planning. It covers sales performance process, skills, and how to motivate an individual. So those are the five key elements that we focus on. Now, within each one of those five key elements, Michael, there are things that we need to do. So, as an example, if we said, okay, well, let's take sales performance skills as an example. So, if I said to you, Michael, what do you think the key skills that a salesperson must have if they're going to be successful? Firstly, they've got to know how to go out and develop business. They've got to know how to prospect. They've got to, business development would have to be a key. Would you agree? I would agree. Okay, what about planning and how to manage themselves and how they manage their time and manage their territories? That's a critical element. The other thing that we know is critical is how good they are at diagnosing the problems of the customer. We know that if I can identify a need and more importantly get the customer to identify the need within themselves, half the job of selling is done. That's a skill. Call that diagnostic acuity. That means I'm able to go in there and ask the critical questions and get to where the customer themselves self-realizing that, hold on a minute, you're right, this is an issue for me. And there's many models that have been developed by wonderful training companies to help develop skills of business development or time management or diagnostic security. But these are basic skills that if a salesperson is going to be good at the job they have to have. What about the other skill that we call it engaging all parties? Today, most sales are not made to somebody one-on-one. There's normally more than one person involved in the decision. The salesperson needs to be able to get to all of those people, find out what their needs are, why they would want product. And then, again, the final skill that we look at is how do they actually bring the whole thing to a conclusion? You know, we're looking at sales cycle timelines. And it's not just about closing the sale. You don't close the sale if you haven't opened the sale up correctly. But there are processes that salespeople must be doing in order to get conclusion, in order to get that sale to the point of, uh, yes, now I've got a purchase order. So those are the five key elements in just one aspect called skills. Why is having a sales process such a vital piece of this sales production puzzle? Why a process? 
I'll share something with you, Michael, which I think you might find interesting. It's something we do in the workshop. Um, are you willing to just play a little game with me for a quick sure. minute? Yeah, okay. let's do it. So I want you to think of a number from 1 to 10. Okay. Okay, now when you've got that number, I want you to multiply that number by 9. All right. You got it? Yep. Okay, now if, it's, if you've got a two-digit number, I want you to add them together. Oh, after I multiply? So, yeah, so let's say you, whatever you multiply, you've got two digits. I want you to uh, add them together. So let's say you had 23, you'd say 2 plus 3. Okay, all right. Okay. And if, if, I, don't, if I don't? Then, then that's fine. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, now I want you to subtract 5 from that number. Okay. So you got, you got it? Yeah. Now... I'd like you to think of a letter of the alphabet that corresponds with that number. So, in other words, if the number was a 1, you'd have A. If the number was 2, you'd have mm -hmm. B, got 3, it. C, etc. Okay. Yep. You got it? Yep. Now, when you have that letter in your head, I want you to think of a country that starts with that letter. Got it. You got it? Now, in terms of, think of the second letter of that country. Okay. And think of an animal that begins with that letter. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Got it? You got it? Yep. And think of the color of that animal. Okay. Now, if we've done our work correctly, your answer should be a gray elephant from Denmark. That's exactly right. Now, that is a process. I took you through step by step from A to Z. But isn't that astounding? That's astounding. That's a great. That's great. I like that. So when it comes to process, if you look at if you look at a sales organization, what is our process for attracting new business? What is our process once we've attracted that new business? What is our process for uh, servicing that account? What is our process for um, to identify whether they've got needs or whether there is a fit. What is our process for follow-up, etc., etc.? This is why it's, if you've got step A, B, C, D, you end up with gray elephants from Denmark. Could you fool this process? Like when you ask me to think of an animal, I thought of elephant, but I was trying to think of another animal. Well, yeah, you could have had an emu from Egypt. Would that have messed it up? Well, you know what, at the end of the day, well, we do this in workshops, and I would say that probably 80% of people think of elephants from Denmark. Right, right. So what does that prove? It proves that process works 80% of the time. You're never going to get anything to work 100% of the time. The idea is to improve what you're currently doing to work most of the time. We have all these processes in the rest of our business. We've got an accounting process. We've got an IT process. Why don't we have a sales process? Why is the sales process left up to the individual salesperson to work it out? Why is such a vital piece of the sales production puzzle overlooked by so many of these sales companies? Like any process, to develop a process takes time, it takes thought, generally it takes an investment. 
whether you've got to bring in an outside facilitator or an expert or you do it yourself, it still takes time. So if we look at the five key elements of a sales performance process, the first element is if you've got to design the process. So we've actually got to sit down and actually design it. And here's the interesting thing is, and what we find is that most design processes are designed as to how we should do it from a sales perspective. So prospects will go out for identify needs, then we'll present our product, and then we'll try to close the sale. Processes, if they have any thought, are designed from the salesperson's perspective. Where we come from is say no. The first place you start is to look from a buyer's perspective. What is the process that your customers go through to buy a product? So it's a different thing entirely because, you know, they're going to go through an investigative process. Every customer is different and every organization is different as to how they buy. But developing a process is based on how our customers buy. And then we match our sales process to that. If we're looking at developing a process, once we've actually worked out how our customers buy and we've matched our sales process to that, the next thing we have to develop is best practice methods and tools and templates. As an example, if there's a follow-up letter that goes after my first visit, should we just leave it up to the salesperson to come up with their own letter or should we give them some key elements they must include in that letter? So developing tools and templates that are designed to get a result. You know, people resist sales scripts. However, I do believe that if I'm brand new at something, then I need to follow a script initially until I can actually make it on my own, until I can start to inject my own personality and so that I cover all key elements. So what's the process that happens when you get an incoming call? And maybe it's not put through to the sales department immediately. Should the receptionist have a list of half a dozen questions that they should ask? These are tools and templates that must be developed as part of your process. And then, like anything, you've got to have clear measures because, you know, once you've got a clear measure and you know we're in part B or part C of the process, then I can measure it, I can manage it. And then finally, you've got the skills and behaviors that are required to drive the process. Once you have a well-defined sales process, then you can plug anybody into that. So you can take somebody, a brand new salesperson, and you say, okay, the way that we approach our customers is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to this is how we follow up and service. And it's clear and it's measurable and the salesperson can follow it and there's tools and there's templates, all things that go towards helping them to achieve what they need to achieve. If we just look at the classic numbers as to why you should have a sales process, we know that from all the studies that have been done on talent, that only between 3 and 10, maybe 15% of, if you're lucky, salespeople have the intuition or the skills or the natural ability just to go out and make things happen. So what about the other 85% of people that we have to give them step-by-step processes so that they too can come up with grey elephants from Denmark? It shouldn't just be left up to the top tier of the salespeople. So if we can take the rest of the team, Joe Average, and put them through a well-defined, specific sales process that details all the steps along the way and gives them tools to use at each step. Now all of a sudden we're headed towards, as I said, our gray elephants from Denmark. What's the difference between managing a sales process and managing a salesperson's activity level, or is this the same thing? If you're managing activity, you're looking at things like how many calls did they make, how many appointments did they get, but you're not actually looking at the quality or the content of the call. So... When you're looking at process, you're looking at the quality as opposed to just the outcome. You're looking at things that happen along the way rather than just the result. Let's face it, if it's taking me 20 calls to make one appointment, now you could say, well, 
that should tell me that there's a problem with salesperson. Okay. But unless you actually go in, sit now, listen to the person, find out what they do, all you're really focused on is the outcome, is the result. Whereas a process is about what do I do to get five out of my 20 calls? What do I do when I hit the gatekeeper? What is the best way to get around a gatekeeper for what it is that we sell? Not for what it is that you sell or the way to sell insurance or the way to sell pension programs or cleaning cleaning. It's the way that we sell in our business. What's the best way? So again, as an example, if the gatekeeper is the receptionist and I'm selling an industrial product, what's the best way to actually avoid going through reception altogether? Is there a way that I can go around the back of the organization? And again, if you've got a process for doing that that works 70, 80, 90% of the time, now all of a sudden you've got a salesperson who's starting to get some success. Ian, there's tons of sales training out there today. You've got spin selling. I've heard of solution selling. I've heard of strategic selling, consultative selling. Is there a best practice sales training model that someone in sales today needs to at least investigate? There's so much really good sales training out there. The question is, what's the best model for me? Until you actually get into the architecture and the plumbing of an organization, you know, how do you know that spin selling is actually going to work for what it is and the way that it is that we sell. We know from adult education that when you're educating adults, one of the keys is it must be relevant. In other words, what I'm learning must be relevant to what it is that I'm doing. And this is the problem with typical generic sales training, is that people find it really hard to translate the generic into, well, what does that mean for me? So many times, no matter how good the program is, it does need somebody to come in and tailor it to suit the organization. But let's face it, how many sales managers are experts at all the methodologies as to what is out there for in terms of sales training? So what they'll probably do is they get some referrals or they'll go through the or they'll Google or they'll go through the yellow pages and identify half a dozen or maybe three or four sales training organizations, they'll come in and they'll get them to do presentations and go through, you know, how they do things, you know, they'll make a decision. The question is they're only looking at three methods or four methods or five methods and hopefully that method will be right for my organization. Where we come from is we say, hey, we've got an open canvas. Depending on the need of your business, we'll find the right training methodology for your team. Depending on the way you structure your sales process, we'll find the right method. And again, there's so many wonderful methods out there. Because this whole thing called sales training and learning is my passion, if you were to look around my home at the moment, I'm reading probably one, two, three books of the latest books on selling, you know, value-added selling and question-based selling. There's so much wonderful stuff out there, but as a sales manager, how do you know what's going to fit you? You don't. So you either go from experience or you trial and error. It is a tough one because many times you don't get the right fit. And if you don't get the right fit, then... There's all that time, effort, of course, dollars that have just been poured into something that doesn't deliver a result. Well, let's talk about sort of Rocket Up Your Sales Team clinic that you've put together. I'm looking at a headline here from your flyer. Having dramatically increased the output and revenue generation of your sales team without increasing your cost. Could this be possible without increasing my cost? We believe that if we're saying that the key element to increase sales production is the sales manager, then if we can give the sales manager some models, some tips and tools for them to go back into their sales teams and apply those models, they will get sales production. There's no question. Obviously, 
it would be wonderful for us to come in and help the sales manager integrate these tools. But there are many people that are quite capable of picking up, you know, a tool or a model and actually driving it into their own organization. And what we're saying is, let's give them the right tools, the right models, and let them go into their companies and implement them. So if all they got out of our session was, I'm going to sit down with my salespeople once a week and look at the week that was and the week that's coming up in depth, and I mean in depth, I will guarantee they will get huge, massive increase in sales. No coaching, no sales support from me or from our organization. If they just did that one thing, look at the week that was and the week that's coming up. The productivity gains that they will get will literally blow them out the water. You know how I know it? Because it blows me when we go and put something as simple as that into an organization. Within two to three months, sales are just lying. Tell me, what is this clinic? Why did you put it together? And what am I going to learn there? Give me an idea about this clinic. We put the clinic together as, a, I guess, twofold. Firstly, it's a way of giving managers tools that they can take out and apply and use so that whether they use our service or not, it's a way of exposing them to tools that I wish I had or I certainly wish that sales managers that I've had in my own sales career would have used. My whole purpose is I love salespeople. I love the whole concept of selling and I want salespeople to be successful. And I know that if sales managers will implement the tools, even if, as I said, one, two, three or four of them, they will get a result. If I'm a manager and I'm coming to this clinic, what am I going to get? As I said, I'm going to learn some powerful methodologies that I can implement immediately. And as we say, that will rocket their sales forward. We'll help them identify the true cost of their sales calls. So, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if I knew that my sales calls on average were costing me $250 a call, what would I do as a result? What would I expect? from my salespeople as a result. We'll actually give them some tools and some templates that they can take back with them, one of them being 13 critical questions that a salesperson must be able to answer before they make the call. How do I keep my best people? I've got a really good person and I know that it won't be long before competition is coming to tap him on the shoulder. How do I hold on to that? We're going to look at the key issues that are facing sales managers and sales directors today and how to avoid them. Bottom line is, you come to this workshop, you walk away with proven effective tools and most importantly, Michael, practical strategies that you literally can put to work immediately to prepare your sales team to really get them to start moving. If you were to approach a sales manager with your consulting, would you ever encounter the scenario where the sales manager may be hesitant about asking the boss to pay for this consulting and why? Great question. The interesting thing is if I'm talking to a sales manager and presenting to a sales manager, they're thinking to themselves, I really need this. However, if I go to my boss and say, look, I need a coach, I need someone to help me, they're thinking, well, hold on a minute, the boss is thinking, well, what am I paying you for? You're the one that's supposed to know and have the answer. That's what I'm paying you to do the job of the sales manager. Now you're telling me that you need help. Business somehow is very different to say, in, in, on the sports field. Well, you wouldn't think twice about having a coach even in a junior league, never mind in, you know, in the seniors. You wouldn't think twice about, no matter how much you're paying your professional sports person to get him a coach, and yet in business, even though the research and the data is there just to show the incredible uh, improvements in performance once you have a, a coach, somehow the people needing the uh, unless it's actually driven top-down, very few people would actually go for it. Unless, of course, they were willing to pay for it themselves. Now, you offer a 100% guarantee. Can you describe about that guarantee? What is it? Bottom line, Michael, 
if you're not happy with, with what you get, we'll give you your money back. You walk into a shop and you buy something and it doesn't do what it promised to do, you should have every right to get your money back. And this is no difference. Uh, we teach our customers that they need to stand by their products. We believe you come to this workshop. If you don't get a thousand percent more than you paid for, we'll more than happy to write your check on the spot. What is the price currently now, the investment, for someone to come to this workshop? Investment for the workshop, is only 285. We will be raising the investment, but at the moment, this is more of a, a way of, as I said, let's get the information out there. Let's get the tools and the support and the help out to sales managers who really need it. If I come to this workshop, am I going to be hard sold on some higher package presentation, or is it a content-driven workshop? No. The truth of the matter is we're not yeah, they're totally products. It's just a way of exposing McKenzie Consulting and what we do and how we do it. But most importantly, it's about giving you some tools and some skills and some strategies that you can take back and implement this workshop. We're not here to sell you anything. We're here to give you some really practical tools and processes to help your business. If I wanted to bring my sales manager and I'm the owner, I wanted to bring a partner or another person from the business, is there any kind of discount or is it the same price? Because we have limited space. It really is the same price, but you know, my view is in life everything is negotiable. So test one of our salespeople, see if I'll give you a discount. If I'm interested in coming, how can I schedule and get me booked in? Who do I call? What number? Uh, what I would recommend is give our office a call, area code 02-9460-7022, and ask for the sales tutor, and you'll be put through to find out what you're looking for and plug you in. Again, this is not hard sale. If you've listened this far to, you know, to the recording, and you've got an interest, you wouldn't be finding otherwise. We're not here to hardcore sell you into a workshop, but you'd only be calling because you're interested in coming. It's more about do we have the space. And if we can't book you into this one, then we'll book you into the next one. Ian, I really appreciate this. This has been a heck of a call. I mean, I've learned a lot, and I really appreciate you sharing even some of your personal experiences when you were, I think when you were 16 and that guy fired you. He opens up a can of worms. you got to thank that guy. It was a defining moment. We all have them in our lives, don't we? That's been a driving force, and look what a blessing that guy has put on you. And for all the sales managers and trainers that you've worked with over the last 25? Yeah, 25. You know, it's all about, at the end of the day, the salesperson out on the road trying to make a sale. How can we help them just to do it better? I'm sure you've done that, and you'll continue to do that and get better at it as time goes by. I really appreciate you sharing. Thanks, Michael. That's the end of our interview with Ian, our sales management expert. For more great interviews on marketing, advertising, and direct mail, go to Michael Senoff's hard to find seminars.com.